The pace line is off the bike, and we go into the feed zone. Behind you! Go, Debbie! We talk about how to do it right and how it can go wrong. There's no place in the world where feeding and endurance become more acute than at ramp. And uh, the year I was there, uh, someone, I don't remember who, but someone was so abusive to their crew, their crew just drove off, went home. And the science of selling bikes with Bill Nye, the science guy. Are you a beginner or do you have a few miles under your belt? And what are you looking to spend on this bike? Well, we just plug your answers into our formula. Voila! I got a road bike! Line, the podcast on two wheels, and uh, two is the operative word because we are a twosome this week. Fatty, off the back. He's lost the wheel. So that leaves the rest of us here, Patrick, handling the workload. Uh, Patrick Brady, of course, of redkiteprayer.com is here with us. And Patrick, uh, RKP was a recently recognized as a top cycling blog. Congratulations. Well, thanks. Uh, yeah, Feedspot, uh, which is an aggregator, uh, uh, or, or, well, they, they do RSS feeds. Uh, it should be noted that Fat Cyclist was actually 10th, uh, and we were 12th. Um, so Fatty was even, uh, shall we say, more recognized than RKP. But yeah, it was, it was nice to be recognized as being one of the top cycling sites uh, around. Yeah, that was 12th out of 100, I think, right, around, yeah. the, around the globe. And these are blog sites that focus on cyclists. So if you're an RKP reader, you are reading one of the best sites in the entire world when it comes to the uh, the blogosphere and, and whatever what other sphere is there these days, right? So blog, <laughs> congratulations, Patrick, RKP. Of course, when RKP gets recognition, I, of course, stick my sunken chest out as an occasional contributor to RKP and, of course, the place where this podcast resides so i'm gonna gloat a little bit you should happy to happy to be a part of the family the rkp and the fatty family uh speaking of gloating i'm gonna do a little more here patrick and my buddy sean holderbaum i don't know if you know sean he's a a recent uh yeah recent south bay writer here well he and i went out to get him a spot in the 2017 leadville 100 we went to barn burner that's a qualifier near flagstaff arizona Races 100 miles, and he pulled it off in 642. That put him eighth overall and third in the very competitive 40 to 49 category. His four lap splits went like this. It was a pretty amazing ride. Uh, His four lap splits were 135, 135, 140, 145. Now, my splits were 11 seconds, 10 seconds, and 11 seconds. What? Yep, I I did 32 seconds of work. To his six hours forty two minutes, <laughs> my work, my work was in the feed zone, uh, keeping the ice chest properly arranged and and waiting for my moment. And my man would come by, and I'd hand up bottles and stuff his pockets full of uh, fresh food. Actually, there was a little more work than than just sitting in the feed zone. Barnburner has a Le Mans start, you know these things, yeah. Le Mans start. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's where riders run to their bikes. So at Barnburner, they allow racers actually to have someone hold their bike 
as uh, the racers run to them. So here's how that went. Good morning, Paceliners. It is morning here in just outside Flagstaff, Arizona. We are at Barnburner 100. Uh, we're already looking ahead to Leadville 2017. This is a qualifier. Michael Houghton, your host here. Uh, I am crewing this event for my good buddy, Sean. Right now I'm holding his bike. He is running to the bike. So I am looking for my man, Sean, uh, as he is about to jump on the bike. Here come the riders now, the lead guys. All right, still looking for Sean. Not a great runner, obviously, because I've already got plenty of guys. Here comes Sean. All right, Sean, you're all started. Go on, buddy. Dig off. Good job. Ah, and we sent him on his way. That's it, Pace Liners. That's a Le Mans start here at the Barn Burner 100. Look at him go. So then it was off to the easy up <laughs> where, uh, you know, you do your best to stay focused because, you know, I mean, the reason why we're having the discussion, Patrick, is the importance of, of feeding and feeding riders, whether you be on the receiving end or the giving end of that is, you know, pretty, it's an important part of, of racing, pulling this off properly. Because if you have a lapse, you could suddenly have, if you have a lapse in concentration in the feed, you could suddenly have a hungry, thirsty rider bearing down on you. Yeah. Uh, in fact, uh, I remember once I was in a race and was coming around for a feed, and there was my feeder holding my bottle, but instead of looking for me, this person was engaged in chit-chat with someone else in the feed. <laughs> Oops. And I was missed as I went roaring by. Uh, so staying on your toes in the feed is important. You have to you know, avoid the distractions. Um, in fact, we had one uh, there at Barnburner. A major distraction, something I call uh, the guy with the guitar. Oh gosh! At Barnburner, U.S. crew members, us crew members, actually were were sitting around and we were being serenaded. I've seen lonely times when I could not find a friend, but I'd always thought that I'd see you again. Yeah, the six string is a dangerous thing in the feed zone. Please you tell know, me he didn't play Margaritaville. <laughs> no. Did play one other tune. I think it may have been a, a Foo Fighters tune or something. Um, but you know, the guy with the guitar—it's been known to send crew members into La La Land. So, <laughs> one thing all feeders need to remember: beware, be aware of the guy with the guitar. Keep oh, your focus, dude. The things that can go wrong in feeds—I mean, it's one of those things that until those things go wrong, you kind of look at the situation and think, "Oh, I didn't think it could go wrong that way." Uh, one of my old teammates from UMass. Sean Morrissey, uh, he's been doing a lot of the ultra endurance uh, mountain bike events, 24 hour stuff, 12 hour stuff. Uh, <laughs> when he's lined up for Boggs eight hour, that's a short day for him. Uh, but one day at some 24 hour race, uh, his sister was helping to crew. And instead of two scoops of his drink mix in each bottle, she was putting one. And he didn't figure that out until you know, hours and hours and hours in, and I think like 12 hours into a 24-hour event, and he was bonking, and he couldn't figure out why he was bonking, because he was taking in everything he was supposed to, and then they find out when he's in the pits, oh, no, I was only putting one scoop in. Uh, Face palm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, tell me about your, if you were to do a, a, a feed class, teaching a feeder, the, the proper way to do a hand-up, what would be some of the things you would tell them 
to just keep in mind, again, maybe you have a beginner on your hand or somebody's only done it uh, a couple of times. What are some of the instructions you would give somebody if they're going to uh, do a feed and and specifically a a road feed where, where something's happening on the fly? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's certainly, you know, where all my experience with feeding comes in is on the road. Uh, and it's funny how many of those lessons came flooding back this past weekend as I was watching the women's Vuelta on TV and there was a feed zone on the circuit. And I, you know, man, every one of those people out there were true pros because there wasn't a single dropped bottle. Um, the first thing is that, you know, the, the new feeder will just hold their arms straight out, you know, like they're a telephone pole and you can't do that. You got to get the bottle moving along with the rider. The rider has has a duty in terms of, you know, bringing that bottle into their body. You don't just reach out with your arm and try to grab it. Uh, you line up so that, you know, your body is headed toward that bottle and so that you can kind of cradle it like you would catching a football. Um, that's big and important. Uh, but the faster the rider is moving, the more the bottle needs to be moving. Years ago, I was crewing for uh, Shauna Hogan at ram and uh in arizona we weren't allowed to do hand ups from the van so you actually had to go park the van get out of the van and then hold the bottle out for the rider well Mm. shauna would be in aero bars moving at 23 miles an hour she was doing 23 miles an hour for hour after hour after hour it hurt me just to look at her but because she was moving so quickly i had to start running Um, just as she was approaching. And then I would kind of twist my body around and hold the bottle out and uh, allow her to grab it that way. But that's the big thing that people don't understand is if the bottle is completely motionless, people are going to have a tough time grabbing it. You've got to kind of swing it with them uh, to reduce that difference in speed. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a difficult thing. Yeah. Yeah, otherwise the bottle can just end up slapped out of the hand of the feeder and then onto the ground and rolling into the peloton and then crashing. Potentially, yeah, yeah, you you could have a whole mess on your hand. My most of my feeding experience experience as a feeder has been at endurance events, endurance mountain bike events, where you at least get the benefit benefit that is of a full stop by the rider or at least a slowing by the rider. I think some of the important things about executing good feed is is getting with the rider for at least a few minutes beforehand and going over their feeds. Make them be specific about what they want and when they want it. Uh, a lot of time can be saved in food and drink. Uh, if the food and drink that is are laid out beforehand in order, when they want it, how much they want, the rider can just straddle the bike as the feeder replaces bottles, stuffs pockets with nutri- uh, fresh nutrition. I'm very proud of my 32 seconds over three feeds at Barn Dude, that's Runner, dynamite. We, yeah, it was pretty cool. But most of that is, was due to pre-planning. I mean, we just well, laid it all out. We knew what we were going to do with each feed, and we had him in and out of there F1 style, Formula One style. You know, I saw a lot of riders pulling at Barn Burner, uh, just start asking for stuff. And right. Peter was like scrambling around, trying to find what's being asked for. Yeah. It's not a restaurant, guys and girls. It's a feed zone. <laughs> Treat it like a Formula One stop, a NASCAR. Well, and pit. terminology right. is important. You know, mm-hmm. um, if you've got people who aren't cyclists crewing for you, um, they need to understand the difference between uh, gels and jellies. You know, some people call chews jellies, um, yeah. and may think that you're referring to a jelly when you say gel. Um, so that sort of thing. You know, mix and water, uh, not say bottle. So. 
yeah, terminology can be really critical to cutting down time that way. Yeah. It's and, crazy and planning, how that can happen. Right. And planning with your writers becomes even more important if you have multiple writers you're trying to trying to help. I helped five writers at Leadville one year. And so what we did with each writer is the night before we sat down and they they were required to put fi- their feeds, their four feeds, and that's what you get at Leadville, their four feeds in four separate bags that were each labeled as to, you know, for instance, Twin Lakes, when I'm Twin Lakes outbound or Twin Lakes headed to Columbine, I want this specific feed. And they put each item in there and only the items they would want. So it became automatic for the feeders. All the, Oh, here comes so-and-so rider. They pull out that bag. You know, they empty his his bottle cages, put the fresh ones in, put the fresh food in, push them out of the, the pit stop, and on they go. It can just... And this can be, it sounds like nothing. You know, you're standing in the feed zone, you're wandering around. Oh, I'm just going to stop on the feed. If you're the rider, I'm just going to stop on the feed. I'll get what I need. I'll roll out. But you can save minutes uh, off your total time, your cumulative time, by tightening up these these feeds. So, And I guess the other thing, Patrick, is I would you know urge riders especially, and I've seen this especially in road races, I've seen downright abuse by riders, like yelling at oh, their feeders. yeah. To get it right, or you messed it up, or what? Now, look, I've pulled some pretty obnoxious things too. Mostly, it involves uh, my very weak bladder. I'll pull up into a feed on an endurance mountain bike event, and I've been known to pee at the feet of my feeders. But I try to be nice, thank them, uh, acknowledge their efforts, um, wave, be kind. It it goes a long ways because uh, sitting in a feed for hours waiting for somebody to show up is not the greatest way to spend uh, spend your weekend. Well, or weekend. can I offer a worst-case scenario on that? Sure. Well, there's no place in the world where feeding and endurance become more acute than at RAM. And uh, the year I was there, uh, someone, I don't remember who, but someone was so abusive to their crew, their crew just drove off, went home. <laughs> that... <laughs> That is a, that is a protest. I'd like to see. Awesome. Um, so, uh, congrats to my man Sean Holderbaum. Great day. And in the end, it is the racer who gets the time, and it's them. And but if you know the feeder can play a small part, uh, not just with the feed, but with the moral support, um, with the reassurance. Um, so feeders can play a small part. But I do want to congratulate my man Sean Sean Holderbaum for qualifying for Leadville. We're finishing eighth overall at Barnburner, of course, third. He's on the podium. That's fantastic uh, in this category. Really a great, great ride. Um, uh, Patrick, uh, speaking of Sean, he he ran with a new uh, bike computer, the Wahoo uh, bike computer. Element. And he's been raving about this thing. Of course, uh, I'm a Garmin guy, and he talks this this Wahoo up like it's the greatest thing. Since yeah, we're gonna fix that. Or, um, <laughs> you know, so my eyes are rolling. I get it. Whatever. But you've reviewed the product. You've uh, you know put it through its paces. Yeah. Tell us about the Wahoo computer. What makes this thing uh, so great? Well, yeah, the Wahoo Element, it's a GPS unit from Wahoo. And everything I've used from Wahoo so far in terms of electronics has been, you know, basically flawless. I've never had a single problem. I've had their scale for, I think, three years now. Um, I've been using a Wahoo Kicker. Just... All of their stuff is so dialed, but the Element is uh, a really serious GPS. You know, Lazine came out with three units um, of varying abilities, and theirs are really nice. But I tell you, 
the Wahoo element is easier to set up. It's got a, com a companion app that you put on your smartphone, and that's what really takes care of all of the setup. So you're not doing something like Polar where you hold one button, tap another button twice, and then rub the third with your nose. Um, it's really simple. You've got a lot of flexibility in terms of you know what appears on each screen. Um, there are five separate screens. It also includes maps for the entire world. Um, unlike you know Garmin, where you get uh, a micro SD card, then you have to update it depending on you know what continent you're going to be on or what country you're in. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's already included all the maps for the entire world. If you want, you can go through and delete stuff you know you'll never use. Uh, but with the craziness of my life, I like looking at those. Going well, you know, I could ride in Albania at some point. <laughs> um, and uh, the perhaps my one of my most favorite features about this is so you can choose what appears, uh, which functions appear on each screen and you choose where those appear uh, on that screen. And so the thing is to include the data that's most important to you up high and the stuff that you may only look at occasionally down low. There are two buttons on the right side of the element that allow you to zoom in and out of the screen. So as you click in, you go from, you know, uh, 10 features to like seven to six. Um, and you can blow these things up so that there may only be, you know, two, three, four different uh, readouts uh, on the screen. And this was really key for me when I was racing at Wente, the eight hours of Wente, the bog surrogate event back last May because there was a section of the course that was very flowy, but it didn't really get fun until you really pinned it. And so it was important for me to make sure that I didn't go too far into the red zone having fun in there so that I didn't blow up later on. And so I could use the element to zoom in on heart rate and just basically have you know three numbers show up in that readout. And it was super clear, even if I was bumping around you know, catching a bit of air or whatever, I could still see that heart rate number and know, well, let's, let's make sure we keep below 156. Um, mm. That was the key for me. And so it was a way to, to have a, a governor on me, so to speak. Um, and, you know, have it readable on a mountain bike because uh, the Lazine units, as nice as they are, and, and Garmin's, um, you know, for the most part, those numbers aren't big enough to see if you're bouncing around too much. Yeah. And for roadies, um, you know, you can have all the, all the different, uh, displays going and it's really easy to read that, uh, you know, there's no like three point type on anything. And that's another thing I like. There are times when stuff comes up on certain computers that, uh, the type is just so small. I can't possibly read it without my glasses and I don't ride with glasses. I understand, too, the screen setups themselves are much easier. It's something actually Sean told me that he got tired of, of how how kind of cumbersome it was to change uh, settings and screen displays on the Garmin. He found the Wahoo yeah. to be much easier. Uh, any issue with the satellite dropout um, with the with the Wahoo? How, yeah, how good is it It's a GPS there? unit. And so, you know, you're still, you know, if you get into a deeply wooded section or you're, you know, deep in some canyon, yeah, you're going to get some funky readings. Now, they do offer... Uh, a Bluetooth uh, speed sensor 
so that, you know, you can put a magnet on your front wheel and, mm-hmm. you know, mount that thing to your fork or, or do it to your rear wheel. And yep. so that way you get more accurate uh, speed readout. You, um, you also can use a, uh, a cadence sensor uh, to make sure you're keeping up, uh, you know, with what your cadence is. And another nice thing about this is, you know, compared to, I think, basically everything but uh, Lazine, you know, uh, the, the Element will, uh, has chips for both Ant Plus and Bluetooth. So it doesn't matter if you're, you know, if you want to run an Ant Plus power meter and a Bluetooth uh, chest strap, uh, it, you know, it'll accept data from both. There's no problem mm-hmm. there. So it's it's a really robust unit, and I have yet to experience a situation where I hit a bump and the thing turned off, which is something that was you know Garmin, which is so famous for. Yeah, and uh, I also understand it has automatic upload to Strava. For, so for the Strava freaks, you don't have to you know take your unit, plug it into your computer, go through Garmin Connect, and then upload. It goes straight to Strava. Yeah, and another. Pretty cool feature that actually can work nicely if you're uh, back to our feeder segment. Say you you have a rider who has a Wahoo Element, they can send you an email, and it will allow you to track the rider real time um, from essentially as Wahoo Element um, on an email on, on a special little uh, screen that you can that you can watch him. So if you're waiting for your rider to come around doing hour and a half or two hour laps, you can actually track them in real time. Yeah, uh, I could see how Life Tracker would be huge uh, for a guy like you sitting in a, a, a pit waiting for somebody to show up. Um, mm-hmm. That Yeah, it's pretty cool. I'd never considered it used uh, from that standpoint. But well, good. I, I mean, people, it's, yeah. good, it's, it's really good to see some, some fresh competition uh, in this segment, the, the GPS bike computer segment. Garmin need, does need to be pushed. I think we all agree that they do need to be pushed because they've dominated... I mean, they've become the generic, you know, oh, are you going to Garmin that? You have your Garmin on I me. Mean, they've become the Xerox of, of GPS devices on bikes. Yeah. So it's cool to see a company come along and say, you know, we're going to push the envelope a little. We're going to test the waters. We're going to see if we can do something better because well, I think in the end we'll... And the bringing pricing down, I mean, this thing's only $329, you know, whereas mm-hmm. like a comparable Garmin has been, you know, upwards of six, $700. So yeah, and again, it's competition. Yeah. That's why you want competition. Yeah, super oh, easy gonna, to use. Right, cool. We're going to have uh, several more gear reviews, in fact, coming up uh, in our garage segment. Um, But I wanted to get to some product, too, that was launched a few days ago. And this is not so much a gear review, but a look at a segment of bicycles popularized by Specialized. The Big S has overhauled the Roubaix. Now, the Roubaix has been a very successful bike for them and began a movement of bikes that offered a more comfortable position, did better on rough roads, was stable... Um, we're talking about bikes that, that came along after it, bikes like the Giant Defy, which arguably is the best bike in this class now. Uh, Trex Domain was another one. In fact, just about every uh, manufacturer, Patrick, has some type of bike that fits into this, you know, what they call what, endurance road bike class or comfort class or what have you. Uh, the Roubaix is, is, in fact, founder Mike Sinyard's favorite bike. He said if he had to walk away from the company with one bike, he'd take his Roubaix with him. So now Specialized has made some really significant changes to this bike. They added front suspension. It's called Future Shock, uh, but it's less of a shock and more of a spring. The movement is uh, between the, the movement that is actually happens between the stem and the head tube. It's about twenty millimeters of travel. The seat post also moves. 
They've clamped it about a third of the way down the seat tube, allowing the post to move fore and aft. They've also gotten rid of some of the relaxed head tube angles that have been uh, the Roubaix have been known for, and they've gone with a head tube and, and fork rake specs from the from the tarmac. It is a little more tire clearance than previous Roubaix. Now up to 32s can fit in it. And the women's Roubaix, the Ruby, has gotten the same kind of treatment too here. So they, they also have the future shock on that thing. Uh, they've pulled the Zerts out of the bike, both bikes. Um, and they've gone with this, the compliance within the fork and within the movement of that seat tube, uh, seat, seat post situation. Patrick, let's first take a look at this front suspension idea. I mean, give us your recollections of previous attempts at trying to put in front suspension on road bikes. Is this something that has all worked in the past? There have been a couple of attempts. There was a Colorado-based bike company, I'm trying to think of what their name was, that did a suspended road bike that everyone laughed at except for the people who rode it. And they said, actually, it works pretty well. Um, And then there was the uh, DKS suspension that uh, Serata had on their bikes and... That was one of those, again, where everyone laughed until people rode it. And they had three different elastomers that would be mounted uh, at, the, at the seat stays. And so the, it was a titanium bike. Um, there was some movement of the chain stays. And the, there were dampers, uh, elastomer dampers, that would be mounted to the seat stays. And everybody said, oh, well, I would end up using the firm ones because I'm a roadie. And universally, I mean, we're talking guys like, you know, former 7-Eleven and Coors Light Pro, Ron Kiefel. He was adamant, you know, oh, I'm going to want the stiff ones. You know, I'm, I like a big stiff bike. He immediately went to the softest dampers they had. Thought it was a totally remarkable suspension, but it was strictly rear suspension. Um, and then there was uh, Cannondale with the head shock. Uh, that was around the same time period, uh, mid to late 1990s. Um, and I rode one of the early uh, Headshock road bikes, and yeah, it was a it was basically a, a spring between the fork and the head tube. And if you were sprinting, uh, how to put this? If you flailed enough in your sprint, you could feel the head tube, you know, moving over the fork. Um, it wasn't. It was not dynamite. Mm-hmm. You know, and so, yeah, at a certain level, you could say that all of these suspension designs uh, failed in some way. You know, they weren't they weren't ultimately successful. We don't see other people licensing those designs and doing them. And what Specialized is doing with, you know, with this sounds like it's not terribly different from the Allsop uh, suspension stem that was used in mountain biking years ago, you know, back in the 90s as well. Um, I haven't had a chance to see it, um, so I, I really can't say de- definitively. But, you know, something that engineers have been saying for any any number of years now is that sooner or later, you know, to make road bikes faster and, you know, more easily controlled, they're going to have to pick up suspension. Now, real suspension is going to be something that, you know, suspends not the rider from the bike, but the bike from the wheels, you know, when when suspension seat posts and suspension stems were being used in mountain biking, you know, there was plenty of marketing speak back then saying that, you know, oh, well, all you have to do is suspend the rider. And it turns out, no, you actually have to suspend the whole bike from the wheels. 
That's what real suspension is. And at some point, you know, somebody's going to take an early step into doing that for real. I don't see anything out there that's really tackling that problem. And it's going to be difficult because of how dynamic road riding is. But, you know, every time somebody takes a step in that direction, I think riders are going to benefit as a whole. They always learn something useful. Yeah, because this looks like with the Roubaix, it looks like what they've instituted is as opposed to they've taken the Zerts out and they've just instituted more shock absorption um, through the seat post and through this this uh, the shock system they have under the stem. Um, by the way, users can pick between three spring rates um, in that in that front shock system, so you can vary it, you can firm it up if you like. Um, the other thing I, I guess I'm wondering about from a branding aspect and marketing aspect is these changes that they've done to the Roubaix. They seem like they'd be more appropriate for the Diverge, which has really become their adventure bike. Um, does, does it at all shock you or did, did, did it catch your attention at all that they, that they would go ahead and put suspension pieces in what is really a road bike and, and not maybe target those for their adventure bike? Not even a little bit. But that's because I understand you know the nature of how product development works. Um, years and years ago, you know, Pete Townsend was asked in an interview, you know, why did the song Jules and Jim uh, about the death of Keith Moon wind up in a solo album? Why wasn't that on a Who album? And he said, well, you know, when I make a solo album, I just, you know, I bring all the songs that I have and those are the songs I work with. I don't save songs for future albums. Product development is much the same thing in that, you know, product managers and engineers are assigned to a project and they bring the best ideas they have right then and there to the bike they're working on. So, you know, the engineers and product management team were working on the new Roubaix. And, you know, next time they go for a revision of the Diverge, all those ideas and whatever else they've learned in the meantime will go into the next Diverge. And I think it's important to understand that, you know, they only work on one bike at a time. And so if it seems odd that, you know, specialized putting such effort into a, a road bike rather than their adventure bike. It's just a, it's a, a nature of the cycle of product development. Hmm. Okay. Well, I love the Roubaix. I always have. I've ridden the Roubaix since it first came out and I still have one. I have an SL4. I thought the SL2 and the SL3 generations were a little softer than I would have preferred, but you know, still good bikes nonetheless. And uh, by the way, I am not kind to my Roubaix. I have never been. They've been off-roaded on a number of occasions. Even <laughs> yesterday, I took mine off-road. It's been pointed down some of the harrowing dirt descents in Sonoma County without issue at all. Um, loves the grasshopper events, my Roubaix does. Uh, specialized, I just want to say, there are two mics who love the Roubaix, your boss and me. So please don't mess up this bike. You know, we love it a bunch. By the way, the launch of the Roubaix and Ruby have come with some snazzy new videos. And guess who has a guest appearance in one of those videos? The Fat Cyclist. Not Fatty himself, but his jersey. See, Fatty's niece, Lindsay, is in the video wearing a Fat Cyclist jersey, riding a ruby. So congrats to the Fatty family for a little fame and hopefully a big discount on a new bike. Now, coming up, didn't you just hate it when as a kid an adult would tell you, remember to share... 
Yet we're kind of having the same reaction to some signs that look like they're supposed to help cyclists, but really come across as unnecessary parenting. That's next on the Pace Line. In third place, Sean Holderbaum. Great race today with 642.44. Paceline, the podcast on two wheels. Patrick Brady of RedKitePrayer.com rated one of the top cycling blog sites in the world. You're at number 12 overall, so congrats on that, Patrick. Thanks. Uh, and uh, Fatty of FatCyclist.com, not here, but we should be getting him back fairly soon. Fatty, we miss you. Come back quick. Pedal hard. Catch on to the Paceline, please. <laughs> Uh, folks, it's hard to imagine ourselves as nine cyclists because, hell, you're listening to the pace line. You obviously have an interest in this stuff. But even when we drive, uh, even when we drive, you know, we are sympathetic to the needs of people riding bikes. It's just our nature. I mean, we're cyclists. We see them. We understand their needs. But imagine for a second that you did not own a bike, had no interest in riding or riders. Your main mode of transportation was a car and the streets you were on were constantly clogged, what would be your reaction to, as you sat in traffic, a share the road sign? Share the road. Really? (laughs) Share the road with a slow-moving bike that is moving in out of traffic, maybe blowing stops. Share the road with someone in goofy clothes, spandex, kind of looks like they're riding around in their underwear, who walks like a penguin when not clipped into those weird pedals. Patrick, share the road sounds, uh, you know, I I can see where the non-cyclists might be put off by this sign a little bit. Share the road, especially, yet you lived in L.A., you know the scene here (laughs) with driving and this competition for space. Share the road. Uh, You wrote a piece about, I think, signage and message and our interplay, our being cyclists with drivers. Tell me some of the points you were trying to make with uh, about share the road and maybe a, a better approach to this message. Well, the post you're talking about, Backlash, you know, begins with me talking about being at a city council meeting for Rancho Palos Verdes more than 10 years ago now, I, I believe it was. And uh, we were having problems with a group ride there, uh, one you still do, the donut ride. And uh, we were talking about our need to have some road and how if we stay together and don't ride single file, we'll move through an area even quicker. And so we end up holding up traffic less time than if you end up with this huge bunch of single file cyclists trying to get over to make a left-hand turn. Um, And while we were there, uh, the uh, lieutenant in question uh, representing the uh, CHP, or no, Sheriff's Department, said you need to share the road and i you know i i just about wanted to slug someone in law enforcement i was so outraged that he would uh pervert that slogan into you know something telling us that we're not doing enough to share the road 
And I, you know, that was simply the first time I heard it used in that way. And I realized walking out of that meeting that, you know, this was a, a bad sign of things to come. And I was right that, you know, so often share the road gets turned around. And, you know, if you're not hugging the white line or, or, you know, practically riding through the grass, drivers are saying you need to share the road and tell cyclists to get out of the way. And so as a slogan and a, a driver education measure, I think it's been an abject failure, but you don't have to take my word for it. Uh, the prestigious journal Plus One published a study by researchers at North Carolina State University, and it showed that the share of the road signs don't do anything to increase uh, rider safety. They do nothing to help cyclists. Um, their study uh, looked at the use of share the road signs, no signage whatsoever, sharrows, you know, those arrows painted on the road, and then uh, the other signs, bicycle may use full lane. And what they found was that the most successful uh, signage in terms of driver education and making sure that drivers will actually, you know, leave you room rather than, you know, run you over or, you know, buzz you, uh, was bicycle may use full lane. And in some cases, uh, those signs combined with sharrows. Um, you know, we're really successful in terms of, you know, making sure that uh, or encouraging drivers in a way that they understood to leave room for cyclists. So, uh, I, you know, it was, it's one of those things where, you know, I'm, I'm a big NPR listener and I kind of sit up and take notice every time I hear about a study that's been published by Plus One. They do really good work. You know, the studies that they publish are, you know, pretty thoroughly vetted. And uh, so I, I trust, you know, the work that they tend to publish. And when, they, you know, they took this on, I, I knew that this was a, a result really worth looking at and, and paying attention to. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I think I think part of the proof in this is, you know, what's been going on in Palos Verdes Estates uh, and, you know, their decision recently to start erecting signs that say bicycle may use full lane. So, yeah, in fact, what they've done down there is they used to have share the road signs and they're removing those signs and replacing them with bicycles may use the full lane. Additionally, they're going to also post signs advising um, motorists of the three foot law here in California that you must give three feet when passing a cyclist, if at all possible, when safe. Um, So those two things are going up instead of share the road. Sharrows, so I guess what the Patrick, what the study was saying is sharrows, along with some other advisement regarding the law, is the is the best way about this. Because sharrows, really, I mean sharrows and share the road, they're kind of hand in hand messages, but they're not. The sharrows, the stencils on the road, really are just they're pictures on the road. They're part of the paint on the road and they just show that bikes could be flowing this way and that bikes could be in the lane and that they're supposed to be going this way with the flow of traffic because there is some confusion about where bikes should be should they be on the road should they be riding a sidewalk should they be riding on the opposite side of the street but the shero is just here bikes are going to be on this road they're going to be going this way the signs share the road are almost a waving of the finger 
look, driver, you have to share the road because there's always a picture of a bike there with the cyclist. And I can see, and I think the study kind of backs this, how that would put off motorists and um, really doesn't do anything for safety. But And if anything, increases the animosity that's that's going on. You're right. Palos Verdes Estates, um, they've made... You know, and and they've made that move with their signage in spite of plenty of opposition from locals up there. And in a small town like that, in a small municipality like that, you know, a, a loud but small group can have a, a big influence on council members. But they have stood strong and they've decided to go ahead and begin some of that sign replacement. And they're also going to look at a, a bicycle master plan for Palos Verdes Estates because... The thing about that particular area, and we've discussed it before, is that it's very tight. The roads are tight. And there's not a lot of room for, for to establish bike lanes there. Well, and the smallest so thing allowed to drive those roads is, you know, a giant Lexus SUV. Right. So their challenge is to find a way to deal with the high number, the high volume of cyclists they have, the cars and the residents that want to move through that area and do so in tight quarters and keep everyone safe. And And they've taken the signage route. Um, to do that. Patrick, how, I, I don't think the study addressed this, but it seems to me it would go a long ways too. If on these signs, both cyclists may use the full lane and the three-foot law signs, that in small print, but still readable, that the vehicle code were printed on those signs. And I, I say that because that way, at least to everyone who reads them, they would understand that this is not just some made-up slogan like share the road that these are actual laws that, that should be followed by everyone. You mean like just uh, print the, the, the code number below it? Right. VC, uh, yeah. you know, V period, C period, and then the code number down at the bottom. Yeah, I, I think that would be pretty genius, you know. Yeah, yeah. nobody's going to take the time to look at that, but to note that, you know, yeah, there's, you know, there's actual uh, provision in the law for this. You know, every little bit could help, you know, but I, I think it's, you know, it's really important because, you know, there's no way to twist the message. You know, there are plenty of drivers out there who think share the road is a reminder to cyclists to leave room for cars. I mean, yeah. seriously, that's, you know, there is that perception out there because it is sufficiently vague. Um, whereas bicycle may use full lane, you know, there's no confusion about what that means. And, mm -hmm. you know, You've ridden through Venice plenty. The Sharrows there on on uh, Venice Ave, um, you know, people will go into the turn lane to pass you. You know, they they have no understanding what those Sharrows mean. Right. Uh, the by the way, the signage uh, issue in Palos Verdes Estates was due to some terrible accidents that happened down there on the peninsula. Three cyclists were killed um, in in a matter of months down there, and so the council thought they needed to to take some action to try and address the driver-rider situation down there. And I guess up in your area too, Patrick, there's been an incident and it's caused uh, some rumblings in the community. Yeah, well, uh, this past weekend was the Tour de Fuzz, which is a charity ride for uh, chaplains of, uh, I believe it's the Sheriff's Department or, or the CHP. Um, not entirely, I don't entirely remember what which that is. But uh, yeah, it's a charity for chaplains. Um, in law enforcement. And uh, on this ride, a, uh, a resident of the area uh, pulled out to pass a slow-moving grape truck because it's harvest season. Mm -hmm. And he was in a huge pickup 
with a you know dual axle in the rear and uh, ran over a woman and killed her. And currently, uh, the CHP is trying to figure out if a law was broken. Um, you know, and I, you know there are those of us who want to get you know bits of lumber and just beats our he- beat our heads against it. Hmm. Um, you know, this this is a real problem. I helped some guys yesterday uh, put together a uh, uh, a ghost bike, which has been, you know, locked uh, to the site there uh, where the crash was. Um, and, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, this is someone who was a local member of the community, but this was a larger event that drew people in from, from other areas. And because, you know, it was a charity event, it's, it's, that's helping to give it a little bit more attention. You know, this could have been any one of us. And, you know, he, uh, the driver in question, you know, pulled out when there just was not sufficient room, uh, to pass safely. And, you know, yeah, just ran a woman over. And Hmm. this is, you know, I think signage is good, but I think things like this are, teachable moments where we really as a community need to step up and say, you know, this could be any of us. And, you know, here's what the law says, you know, there's no just accidental death. You know, when someone is controlling a a motor vehicle, that's just unacceptable. And so uh, we're beginning the efforts to uh, place some pressure on law enforcement here uh, and the DA's office uh, to see this prosecuted. Um, and hopefully, you know, this is one of those things that like so many other, uh, incidents across the country can help to further educate people everywhere, uh, about how important it is to be, uh, at, uh, active within, uh, advocacy in their, in their local area. Cool. All right. Well, um, we hope for the best for the, the biking community up in the Santa Rosa area as they, you know, take on this issue and, and all areas where, Hey, it's great to get involved try to send the right message about what we're trying to do. I think we've seen a great example down in Palos Verdes Estates, uh, a big club, uh, the Big Orange uh, Cycling Club down there that Patrick and I used to both be involved with. Uh, they've really taken on this issue of changing kind of how signage is presented in Palos Verdes Estates and taken on the issue and done so you know, diplomatically without screaming and yelling and getting upset or doing Insults. foolish things. Yeah. Yeah, they've worked through the process and... and you know, I think that's eventually how we're going to uh, find some common ground with our with our fellow motorists. You know, and if I can, I want to say that I think, you know, Palos Verdes Estates is notoriously uh, insular and xenophobic. They don't want anyone from the outside mucking up their little paradise. And I don't think they would have moved at all on this had it not been for the fact that there was you know, a member of Big Orange who was a local resident. And so he could speak as, you know, one of the homeowners there. And so showing that you're really a member of a community is something that really makes a difference when you go to speak to a city council. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. Uh, Interbike is just around the corner. Uh, so we need to clear out our garage because we are expecting a lot of new stuff. Coming up, a packed gear segment featuring a Belgian aero bike, Aero disc braked wheels, and well, what well stock garage doesn't have a fine selection of tubes? <laughs> we look at one of the finest coming up next on the pace line. We look forward to working with members of the local community. We want to work together to find solutions 
but at the end of the day, we want to be safe. Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. Patrick Brady, Michael Houghton. We're missing Fatty this week, but uh, we expect him back soon. Patrick, are you ready for Interbike? Does it matter? It's coming. (laughs) coming. (laughs) I'm still making appointments because I was out of town for a while. I'm still emailing people saying, hey, how's 2.30 on Thursday? Yeah, that's the way it goes. Uh, There's nothing like an Interbike with Patrick Brady. Um, It is a packed schedule um, as RKP roams the the big convention center and just getting around with you can be a real pain in the butt, by the way, buddy, because everyone like stops <laughs> yeah. you and wants to talk to you about old times or some old article or what's going on. So it's like this reunion, but this, uh, all this, the bike porn and bike stuff going on all at once. So it's a bit crazy. Uh, luckily you're not into the bar scene or, you know, other like heavy duty time. Activities, right? <laughs> no time. Uh, well, what happens in Vegas does not stay in Vegas when it comes to Interbike. We usually come home with loads of information on new product. But the fact of the matter is, manufacturers no longer wait for Interbike to reveal new product. Uh, Patrick and I caught up with Richard Wittenberg of Ridley about a couple of, mo- a couple of models, that is, the Belgian bike maker uh, was debuting. So Richard, Ridley's really known as a high-end niche brand, uh, the best coming out of Belgium. But you're showing a couple new bikes here that kind of reach into lower price points than previously. What's going on with those? Well, Patrick, we realize that not everybody wants to spend their entire life savings on a bicycle, even though you and I probably would. And so we've decided that uh, we have to kind of make the bike for the every person. And so we're very committed to taking the technology that we've developed for our upper end models and then trickling it down into more affordable uh, product. Uh, Today, we are launching uh, two new bikes, actually, but they share a lot of the same aerodynamic technologies that we developed for our high-end bikes um, called the Fast Series of Technologies, which are a brake, a fork, uh, and also a tubing shape and uh, and systems. So um, we are introducing a new time trial bike called the Dean. I shouldn't say time trial. It's really a tri-bike that can also be used for time trials, as well as uh, the NOAA. And both of those are takeoffs from our Dean Fast and our NOAA SL. And I rode the NOAA SL this past year. Really liked that bike, very quick. Uh, also, you know, great handling. What's different between this new NOAA and the NOAA SL that I tested? Well, the reality is, is not a lot. Um, it's, it's just sort of incremental small, uh, small changes and refinements. So it started uh, primarily with the change in the fork. The NOAA SL uses what we call our F-split fork, which is a doubled up fork with a, uh, a gap in the middle of it that helps create a negative pressure to pull the wheel through the fork. Uh, the NOAA doesn't, it uses just kind of a standard aero fork. The composition of the frame, we've changed the uh, carbon fiber layup. Uh, when you look at how the bike is actually gonna feel in terms of sprinting, in terms of cornering, they're gonna be very, very similar. The weights are actually identical between the two bikes. How'd you pull that off? Um, <laughs> Well, the F-split fork, although it's very aerodynamic, is really almost having two forks in one. 
So the weight of the fork is a little bit heavier than what our um, standard arrow fork is. So the weight that we save in the fork is kind of put into the frame into the, with the, the extra carbon fiber caused by the lower modulus uh, threads that we've used. Um, so in terms of out on the road, the actual road feel of the bike, you know, when I get on uh, the NOAA, will I notice any difference from what I've ridden in previously? Uh, no. Uh, especially below 20 miles an hour, uh, because the aerodynamic advantages really only start becoming really evident, you know, up above 24, 40, you know, 40 K an hour is where we sort of say, uh, you really start getting the advantages because, you know, wind resistance goes up as a square as your velocity. Um, that the faster you go, the more every little bit helps. So, um, you know, that, that's where you're going to start seeing the, the biggest advantages. You know, you said one thing about handling and I want to sort of bring that up. And I, I also noticed in uh, one of your articles recently, you were talking about, you know, why do, you know, why can't everybody think handle like an old school, you know, road bike. And, you know, Ridley really has been a company that was founded on custom frame building. Our founder was a custom frame builder back in uh, uh, the late 1990s and early 2000s. And that's where he got to start. So he was always very, very committed to making sure that the bikes first and foremost fit well, and rode well. And then technology and aerodynamics and speed all come from that. Again, that was uh, Richard Wittenberg of uh, Ridley talking to Patrick about uh, pri primarily about the NOAA, Patrick, which uh, it's a bike you continue to ride, even though we talked to Richard, what, a couple months ago. H how are things going now? You've been on the NOAA for a little bit? Uh, so I rode the NOAA SL, yeah, back last year. And I'm now on the new NOAA discs. So they've done a version of the NOAA with disc brakes, uh, UCI be damned. And uh, it's a remarkable bike. You know, every time you think, oh, discs aren't that big a deal, I'm just fine with calipers, I get back on another bike with disc bikes, with disc brakes, and just continue to be floored by how great it is. But this is a bike that, you know, is is really, you know, it's a it's meant to be a go fast machine. It's not for somebody who's just kind of riding around and uh, seeing the sights. This is for somebody who's going to race, uh, who wants to be at the front going fast. And it is a perfect sprinter's bike. One of the things I love about this bike is that, you know, when you get up, get out of the saddle, it tracks a really straight, true line. And it's a, a very confident bike in terms of, you know, you can really thrash your way around you know, those hardest efforts when, you know, your handling ability might not be the best, the bike will tr will track true. And it's a really, really neat bike. Mm -hmm. I, I love that the manufacturers are pushing the disc envelope, pushing it into the face of the UCI. In fact, we were talking about the Roubaix earlier in the show. Uh, that bike will be disc only, which is either a huge risk or a huge FU, depending on how you look at it, to the UCI. I mean, the UCI has said... Look, we're suspending discs until the team say they're cool with it. So for for some companies, and Giant actually faced the same issue, they have bikes that are disc only that are designed around the classic, specifically Roubaix, that you know may not even fit into the to the rules of the UCI, but they don't care. They're going forward with it because they know that better stopping means actually faster bikes uh, and um, on a more on a on a lower level, Patrick, I think Better stopping and disc brakes, we're getting a little off track here, means more confidence for the beginner rider, the intermediate rider. It just If they know they can stop fast, they're more willing to get out there and get on their bikes too. So I Absolutely. think hats off to 
Ridley and all these companies who are pushing the disc envelope. Back to aero bikes, though. Uh, an aero bike needs aero wheels, or probably should have them. And that's another thing you've been looking at, Patrick, right? Uh, Envy with uh, some more fine product in the aero category. Yeah, so for a couple months now, even ahead of the announcement of the release of this wheel, uh, set of wheels, I've been riding the new 4.5s, which are disc only. Uh, you can't use these wheels with caliper brakes. Uh, they feature a rim shape that is optimized for discs, which is to say that there's no brake track whatsoever. And the uh, that top portion of the rim that would normally have a brake track uh, actually uh, comes in some, uh, tapers some slightly mm. to where the, uh, uh, the bead of the tire sits. And uh, I've been riding them, yeah, for several months now. And using them, uh, this particular set of wheels is optimized around 30 millimeter tires. I didn't have any 30s handy, so I put on the 32 millimeter Panaracer Gravel King SK and have been ripping around dirt roads here in uh, Sonoma County, as well as some awful paved ones, uh, some paved ones that might as well not have been paved. And they're just absolutely remarkable wheels. I know there are people laughing about the intersection point between aerodynamics and gravel riding because the speeds are lower. But, you know, every little bit helps is what I'll say. Um yeah, it you know it makes a bigger difference if you're going 25 miles an hour than it than if you're going 18 miles an hour, but it still helps. And uh, you know when you consider that some events are you know four, five, six, seven, eight hours long, you know every little bit helps. A uh, bit of help that you can get over that time, you know, gets magnified. And uh, these you know these wheels have definitely made a difference in my speed. The, the thing that really impresses me, though, is that I've done some pretty gnarly descents on these, have banged the rims a couple of times, not deliberately, but, you know, just one of those things, if you're going fast on a rocky descent, sooner or later, and uh, I, I haven't broken a rim. Uh, I don't want to. That's not a phone call I want to make. It scares me. It's embarrassing, but... Uh, considering what these wheels have been through with me already, I'm super impressed. Mm -hmm. And very tubeless compatible. Yeah. Yeah. They're not tubeless ready, but they're tubeless compatible. So okay. took a little work to get them set up and sealed properly. Um, and uh, yeah, they've, they've been really good. Yep. Uh, okay. So awesome set of wheels there from envy as, as well. And then uh, speaking of tubeless or tubes, actually, not quite away from tubes yet, are we? It's slowly moving that way. Um, but I think the, the road segment is still, there's a lot of holdouts in the road segment. So you're, you're going to still need tubes. I mean, even if we do all do go tubeless, you're going to need tubes. Which gets us to our next product review today uh, in the garage. And that is, of all things, Patrick, you have reviewed a tube. One tube. <laughs> which is really getting, I mean, the poor tube, right? It's the forgotten thing. It gets stuffed in your seat bag. It resides in a clincher tire somewhere, out of sight, out of mind. Never gets any glory. So why not a tube? Let's review a tube. And you've picked which tube and why? Uh, the Panaracer Rare. That's R apostrophe A-I-R. It's a lightweight butyl tube. It's a pretty thin tube, so it offers some of the similar some similar ride quality to using a latex tube. Um, and the thing that I liked about it, I mean, tubes are a consumable, you know, so we don't get just sent 
boxes and boxes and cartons of tubes. Uh, I have to go out and buy those just like anybody else. And I figured, you know, if I'm going to be spending money on tubes, I might as well be buying the tubes that I like best. And mm-hmm. so after, after you know, buying loads of tubes over the last few years, it, it occurred to me, you know, I should just start always buying the one that I want, not the, the easiest phone call or, or whatever, or going into my local bike shop. Um, and so I started ordering uh, the Panaracer Rares because you can get two of these tubes into the space of one normal tube uh, normally. I try whenever possible to put two tubes in my seat bag. And so that was the thing. It's like, well, why, why am I not just always ordering the tube that will fit in my seat bag nicely? And, uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's such a geeky thing to get worked up about an inner tube. And, (laughs) but you know, yeah, that's, that's me. Uh, geek central. Uh, one of the things though, about these tubes is that, uh, at least with some of them, not every model, uh, not every variation, I should say, of the rare, but uh, some of them come with a valve extender and a nut to remove the valve cores so that you can uh, get that extender in there even when you're out on the road. And so that way, you know, with a, a long extender, you know, you're going to be able to set up any tire on any wheel uh, regardless of how deep that rim is. And the number of times I've been on rides where somebody realizes, oh, I've got a short stem, I've got a deep wheel, I've got a flat, I'm calling the girlfriend or the wife or whatever. And so this takes care of that problem, which is why mm-hmm. I bought a whole bunch of them. You know, I can even help others if I need to. Yep. And they come in two sizes. So um, I think there's a, a 1923 and then there's a larger size you could size that is you could probably get into a cyclocross um tire yeah uh, i i too i i first picked up on these tubes i don't know how long ago i saw them and went well those are cool they're packed down they also come pre-talked which is not, in fact they sell the talc patrick i don't know mm-hmm. if you know that i have some of their talc in my garage i mean that's kind of what i think of this company i think it's a really actually nicely focused company it is, in fact they're they're so good at what they do they make tires for other people i mean that's what kind of company panaracer is um, I've gone through, uh, I haven't actually gone through, I've had a number of these tubes. Uh, my wife ran a set of, of the tubes and tires on her bike. In fact, she wore the tires down to the cords, but still never got a flat. The tubes still did not fail. In fact, I moved those tubes into another set of tires when I finally replaced her tires and she's still rolling on them. They're that, they're that good. I too yeah. love the way they pack down, um, nice and tight, get two in a seat bag. Very cool. And... While the tubes are a little pricey, right? Yep, fifteen ninety five. Yeah, it's suggested um, retail. A Panaracer does say that. Look, this is kind of a cross. The ride quality is kind of a cross between a butyl tube and a latex tube. So they feel like they've got some some ride quality too uh, inserted, engineered into this tube. Um, but outside of the tubes, their tires, which are also very nicely done. Um, can be found for really good prices. I'm often surprised at how good a tire they make and how cheaply you can find the things too. Good, really good road tires. They make a great gravel tire that you've been on. So very yeah. interesting company and very interesting that they have put a lot of effort and focus into the lowly tube, the poor tube, huh? Leave it to the but, Japanese to think up the best possible tube. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Patrick, one of the biggest questions we get is, um, especially from newbies, is what kind of bike should I get? Help me. What, what, I'm, I'm interested in starting 
starting to ride a bike. What kind of bike should I get? And that opens up, you know, a whole myriad of, of new questions to the rider. <laughs> and um, I, the industry, I suppose, is starting to address, at least one company in the industry is starting to address that, and that is Diamondback. Diamondback is trying to, to answer the age-old question of what kind of bike should I get by employing uh, Bill Nye, the science guy, uh, who has launched a series of videos for, for Diamondback on just what kind of bike to get. Do you want to ride for fun, for fitness, <gasps> transportation, or competition how far do you want to go are you a beginner or do you have a few miles under your belt and what are you looking to spend on this bike well we just plug your answers into our formula voila i got a road bike getting excited yet and we're just getting started we'll get you sized fitted and outfitted we'll look at shifting and whoa Braking. <laughs> don't, don't forget braking. And of course, we'll also cover bike etiquette. Uh, my favorite part, passing my fellow road users on the left. Ah, the beloved bicycle. There's nothing quite like it. It's fun and good for you. It lets you leave those worries behind and focus instead on the possibilities ahead. Are you with me? Come on, let's ride. Yep, so they are fun and, of course, good for Diamondback because their name is all over this thing. And maybe, Patrick, this is an indication from the industry that it's in search of new blood or, or new wallets, as the case may be. Because, you know, sales have not been great. Wholesale, inventories are up. Product has not been moving as well as it should. Um, so is this kind of a – do we see this also as, a, as an outreach to potential new customers? I mean, there's no question that it is. It's, you know, it's certainly engineered that way. And it's a brilliant thing. And they're using a dynamite guy. You know, the only question is, you know, to what degree are bicycle sales right now a reflection of people's attitudes about the larger economy? And I kind of think that, you know, given the current economic circumstance and people's attitudes, you know, that, you know, the the economy isn't stronger relative to the, the normal Joe I, you know, I worry that this might not have as much impact as it would were we in a really strong economy where everybody felt like, you know, gosh, this is great. We're doing wonderful. I'm rich. Uh, Mm. You know, that's not their fault. You know, you got to do what you can to try and drive attention to your sport and, you know, drive sales for your brand. And so I, I really applaud this. I think it's just dynamite. The the other issue with the economy is, while it may sh- be coming back a little bit, I think clearly what's been going on as it does come back, as it has been coming, as people are just being more careful with their, with their dollars too. They're not running around and buying a new set of golf clubs or joining country clubs and not buying new bicycles at a pace they, they used to. And if they do, Patrick, one of the hurdles is when you walk into the bike shop or go online and look at a bike company, especially the bigger companies, the models from entry level to advanced to you know, cruiser bikes to mountain bikes, it's difficult, especially if you're new, to wade through all that and figure out what the hell of all this do I need? Yeah. And it sounds like Diamondback is trying to answer that question too. Yeah. And I think clarifying, you know, what your, you know, what the big buckets are 
I think that's really helpful to new consumers. You know, I mean, obviously, if you've already owned a bike and been riding some, you you have some sense of what may be your next bike. But if you haven't been a cyclist recently, uh, you know, having some help in terms of differentiating the categories out there and what your options are, and also from an aspirational stance, you know, okay, I want a bike, but what sort of riding do I want to do? I really got very fortunate that, you know, I bought a bike that was really well suited to me when I first got back into the sport in my 20s. You know, I've certainly seen those occasions where someone thinks, oh, I just want a hybrid. And then three months later, they're like, I want drop bars. Mm -hmm. And they're faced with selling a bike and buying a whole new bike. And there can be some buyer's remorse in that. Mm Mm-hmm. All right, Patrick, it has been a packed gear segment, and uh, folks, there's obviously going to be more to come because Interbike is coming up, and that just means more playtime for Patrick and I. We need Fatty back here because <laughs> if if this show was just you and me, Patrick, this is what it would be. It would be you and me. This is how Patrick and I met. We we met over gear talk. This is what we love. This is this is the basis for our relationship. So trust me, folks, you want Fatty it's just back. Physical. Yeah, we're gonna pretty soon. We're gonna be talking about chains. And cassettes, and oh, did you see that new free hub body? And it would get, we would really, uh, we would really bring things to a screeching halt around here. With, with gear talk. <laughs> Easy oh, there, man, even I tire of that stuff. Yeah, I know. <laughs> okay, so time to pack our bags for Interbike, Patrick. Any last items for your RKP followers? Uh, just stay tuned. There will be a bunch of posts. I'm I'm anticipating seeing a lot of cool stuff. I've had a, a few little windows into things like, you know, that, that new group from FSA. There's a lot of great stuff we're going to be seeing next week. Yep. Looking forward to it. Fatty is still posting Leadville stories, by the way, folks. Last I checked, he made it to the halfway 36. point. <laughs> yeah. So this is probably going to carry on through the holidays, I'd imagine. Um, <laughs> but they're good stories nonetheless. And congrats to his family for making uh, making the marketing video <laughs> yeah. for Specialized there. Uh, Paceline, of course, is a production of FatCyclist.com. The show lives on RedKitePrayer.com. Show notes, links are there along with a spot to leave a comment. This podcast can also be found on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Music. Uh, remember to rate us if you subscribe using uh, one of those uh, fine outlets. Follow us on Twitter at Paceline Podcast. Tell your friends, your kids, your dog about the Paceline. We're sure they will love it. So for Fatty and Patrick, I'm Michael Hot, and we'll talk to you next time on The Pace Line. And if you said, this life ain't good enough, I would give my world to lift you up. I could change my life to better suit your mood.